Welcome back in another episode, Startups, Sparks and Serendipity. It's Max again on this side, um, Mike is on the other side, and we have a special guest on this episode. It's uh, Jeff Gothelf. For everybody that doesn't know him, um, I think he's one of the, the few people that is very deep into everything related to, to um, product and, and UX, um, user experience design and everything that's related to that. He's been helping different startups, different corporates on trying to better understand how do we need to build product strategies? How do we actually build a culture that supports building the right products? And interestingly enough, um, why we have him on the podcast, he also launched a new podcast uh, a new a book, um, I'm sorry, a new book called Forever Employable, How to Stop Looking for Work and Let Your Next Job Find You, which very much fits into Mike's and my strategy of how we want to, of course, help young people, but any person identify how does the future career prospect look like? How do people actually identify where to go in the future? But how is that even mixed with the tech scene and everything happening in tech? And we're super happy to have him on board. I actually had a podcast with him um, about a year ago uh, in my previous podcast where we talked a lot about UX uh, based on his book, um, Lean UX. But we're happy to deep dive now into uh, the new topic that he has been writing and, and researching about and uh, super happy to have you on board, Jeff. And, and hi, Mike, of course. Hi to you guys. I'm super happy to have the chat. Hey, uh, Max, terrific to see you again and to, and to speak with you again. And Mike, a pleasure to meet you. And uh, Thrilled to be here and, and talk about everything that's new and strange and weird a year later. Uh, you know, it's uh, what a year it's been, <laughs> to say the least. Crazy. I mean, uh, completely different uh, perspective now, I think, on the topics that we've talked about a year ago, uh, I imagine, which is, I think, a good, a good start um, to, to talk about because I think now you launching a new book, um, what has kind of happened for you in the last 12 months, especially now through COVID uh, with your expertise in certain topics? What is something that you have recognized that has changed now within the, the, the differences that we see now after and during COVID? It's a really interesting thing. So look, I do a lot of speaking, coaching, teaching workshops, writing, obviously. The writing, the writing part has stayed the same, right? I write and I distribute online or, or through books or whatever. The, the rest of it is dramatically different. And it's dramatically different from a couple of reasons. Number one is uh, everything's online, right? So not, not a big shock there, obviously. But I was heading in that direction already. I'd started teaching a little bit online. I was trying to push most of my work and of, of the, you know, the business that I was doing to be as remote as possible. But the transition was slow. I wasn't, I wasn't getting as much traction as I would like. I mean, I, look, I could have just you know, put a wall up and said, it's remote or nothing, which is an interesting product strategy uh, for my business. But I, I didn't do that. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, March 13th, I got home from Paris. It was the last time I taught anything live. And that was it. I haven't left the house in six months, basically. But you know, I haven't gone anywhere. So, but, that's, but what's more interesting about them is that obviously everyone is online. And what that's done is it has removed geographical constraints as a differentiation and as a competitive advantage, right? So if you, if you were, for example, like take me, I, do, I, I, do, I teach workshops on product discovery and product management and Lean UX and OKRs and whatever, right? Um, if I was the guy who everybody knew was the OKR trainer in Barcelona where I live um, and you needed to take OKR training in Barcelona, you came to me. But now literally everybody is 
online. The, the, there's no geographical difference between wh where I teach and where, where anybody else teaches. And that's been really interesting. So the level of competition has actually been raised significantly for everybody because the things that, you know, some people didn't like to travel, some people did like to travel, right? All that's gone out the window. So, so the, 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 the work that I do now competes with everybody else globally that does the same amount of work because they, you know, there's no constraint in getting to those people. And that's been fascinating. Yeah, that sounds like a fairly interesting development. And I can mirror it from the startup world. Where actually fundraising has changed significantly as well. And yeah. people from different markets are now better able to actually access capital from Silicon Valley or in Europe, from Berlin, London, despite not being in these places themselves. So I, I totally see how that could change. Maybe diving in into your, to your latest writing, at least in, in the form of a book. Uh, Max mentioned it already. Uh, your uh, most recent book is called Forever Employable. And employability is a very interesting concept. And we, we think that is a, it has changed over the last decade or decades. Can you maybe define employability from your own perspective? And then also talk a bit about what differentiates your own approach from the traditional one. Yeah, so to me, this is the differentiation, right? So if we're looking to make a differentiation today, especially since the, the playing field has been leveled, at least sort of geographically, um, then we have to redefine employability. And for me, that comes with this idea that... Uh, my expertise and my experience is readily and freely available to the world, really, to, 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 to industry. I mean, that, that feels very ambitious, but it is, right? Go for it. But, yeah, well, why not, right? But, but certainly available to the domains and the industries that I, that I work with and that I service and that I, that I participate in. And, uh, and that is my competitive advantage. And so in Forever Employable, I tell my story, and obviously there's stories of other people in there as well, but I tell my story of how I changed the dynamic of job hunting essentially in my life from a, a push model where I was pushing myself into the jobs marketplace every time I needed a new job. I would update my CV and apply for jobs and do interviews and wait, you know, that type of thing. And I, I realized I was going, I, I wasn't going to be able to compete like that forever um, and that my demands were only going to grow. So I changed the dynamic to a pull model. Now, a pull model means that I am attracting opportunities to me. And the only way that I really know how to do that, and it's what I cover in the book, is essentially through content marketing, right? It's building a platform of expertise and experience and then giving that stuff away broadly to the community, to the industry, to different domains, to different disciplines, to anybody who wants to read it with the expectation that when somebody needs someone with my expertise, they will come to me because they read my stuff, they get my newsletter, they follow me on Twitter, they read my LinkedIn posts, they've read my books, that type of thing. And to me, that's what makes me employable today. And, and frankly, just to be a little tongue in cheek, it makes me forever employable. Because as long as I keep sharing what I know, as long as I keep engaging in conversations, as long as I continue to build this platform of thought leadership and recognized expertise around myself, then those opportunities come in. That's been my experience. And that's what I talk about in the book. And look, I, and I want to be very, very transparent about this because it's content marketing. 
right? There's, there's like, if you're looking for the secret sauce, it, what I did is in there step by step, but you boil it all down, it's content marketing and it's applicable to individuals, to services businesses, to startups especially. There's, um, there's a startup I'm working with right now uh, called Impact Product and they do kind of a, a, an, a, an analytics plugin for, uh, for the browser that allows anyone to just get the analytics on the, on the work that they're designing and building very, very quickly and very easily. And they're just starting out and it's, it's a founder that I've done work with before. And w- w- the strategy that I'm engaging with him very explicitly this time is, is content marketing. I'm helping them create content that creates interest in the product ultimately that, they, that they're trying to sell and build and get off the ground. So that's, to me, that's what modern employability is. It's, it's having a brand and I know, I know people at best wince at that and at worst puke on that. Um, but having that personal brand so that you stand out because those, those differentiations, especially now in an online world, are, are, are decreasingly effective. Super, super, super interesting. Uh, interest, uh, what, uh, just for, for your background, because um, Mike and I, we had a, an episode last time where we talked about micro-entrepreneurship, where maybe micro-entrepreneurship 15 years ago was seen as, as a person doing farming in, let's say, more developed countries. Now, micro-entrepreneurship means people that are potentially in a, specifically interested in a certain field and use their leverage in that specific field to make money with it on their own and are not employed or they actually can leverage their own platform and their own expertise further. The question that I had kind of uh, to take a step back more or less, I think also looking at our audience, people that are potentially now crossing the border now from college to their first job or people that have uh, startups or are potentially working in startups, building your own platform is in a specific area, I think is the question that people have. How do you, like, how do you actually identify the specific expertise or area that you want to build a platform in? Because when I look at you, you also have more or less, you, you've built a deep subject matter expertise in product and, and UX. Now you also potentially mix and match that with potentially an HR topic or a career topic that is interested. How, how do you identify, I think you call them flags, but how do you identify the flags that you need to build in order to to, to, to build the platform. Yeah, it's, um, so it, and I think that's the toughest thing for people to, to kick this off. I do, I do want to just touch on one thing that you said at the beginning of the question, and then, and then I'll, and I'll answer the question. Um, you talked about sort of micro-entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday, I was talking to some folks who work in the fitness world, and they use the term micro-gym. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think micro-gym is perhaps a subset of micro-entrepreneurship, right? But a micro-gym is, you know, you've rented out a garage, you've put in some equipment in there and you train clients in there, right? You're not building a big franchise. Um, micro entrepreneurship, maybe that's a better phrase. You know, there was a phrase for a long time in Silicon Valley uh, called uh, a, li- a lifestyle business, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know that phrase, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was always like kind of like people like look, kind of hold their nose and be like, oh, Jeff's building a, a lifestyle business. <laughs> like, and, and it's such crap. Like, that's entrepreneurship. Now you can call it micro entrepreneurship because, you know, maybe people like me aren't trying to build unicorn businesses, right? But it's absolutely entrepreneurship. Those, those guys who run those micro gyms that I was talking about yesterday, right? They are entrepreneurs. 
Um, you know, and so I, I just want to make sure that, that we lose that term, at least the negative connotations of lifestyle mm-hmm. business. I love my lifestyle business. It enables my awesome lifestyle, right? And so, <laughs> uh, and, and so I'm, I'm good with that. Like I just, I, and so I just want to touch on that and recognize that there are tons and tons of businesses like that that are successful and that we should celebrate and not always seek out that that unicorn business. Those are cool and fun, and fun fun to watch for sure. But you know, uh, I just want to I just wanted to touch on that really quickly because you said micro entrepreneurship and it reminded mm. me of this conversation from yesterday. Yeah, the funny thing is that lifestyle businesses often make a lot more money than many of the startups that want to become unicorns. So I think if you look at it in terms of a profitability perspective or just enabling your own financial freedom maybe building a lifestyle business, at least at first, might be the better option. So yeah, just wanted to jump in real quick. Depends on your goals, right? Like for, for, exactly. for me, I mean, my, my goal is, is, to, is to live a certain way, to be able to provide for my children in a certain way, to create the kind of opportunities and experiences that, that I enjoy, that my, my wife and I enjoy, that, that my kids will, will benefit from and, and remember. And uh, in my lifestyle business enables me to do that. So uh, I'm, I'm super happy with it. Anyway, uh, brief tangent, but I thought it was important to mention. Um, <laughs> so you asked me about how to, how to figure out what a plant your flag. So the first step in the book that I talk about um, is planting your flag, and it's deciding what you're going to be known for, right? Where are you going to be the expert? And uh, there are situations where it's very obvious, right? Like for, like for example... For me, it was Lean UX, and it was Lean UX because that was the work that I was doing in 2008, in 2009, in 2010, into 2011 and 12. And the more I did that work, the more I recognized that no one had an answer for this. And so when I decided to, to build this, uh, imp- this change in my employability, um, that was, it was an obvious flag for me. There are folks who are going to struggle to figure out where to plant their flag and build their thought leadership and their platform on. The way you do that is really digging deep and exploring um, what your experience is in, what your expertise is in, and I would also add where your passions are and really starting to assess where you believe sort of markets exist. So it's like building a business, right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is exactly like, like treating this like a product or a service or a new startup, right? Is it's sort of like, well, what are the problem? What are problems that exist in the world? Uh, where are people really paying attention? How do my expert? How does my expertise and experience and skill sets and passions layer on top of that? And then you identify, and these are going to be hypotheses to be very, very clear hypotheses about where you might want to plant your flag. There's an exercise that I talk about in the book that is very, very similar to another thing that existed that I didn't actually find out about until after I published the book. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a Japanese concept called Ikigai. And I wrote about it um, on my blog and I wrote about it um, a, couple, a couple times on LinkedIn. But it's, Ikigai means like your reason for being, the, the reason you get out of bed every morning. And there are four questions in the Ikigai uh, model and it's uh, what are you good at? Uh, what do you love to do? What does the world need? And what can you get paid for? Right? Those are the four questions. And the idea is to kind of brainstorm around those things and then see what things end up in the middle. 
If you can find one or more things that land in the middle, so you're good at it, you love to do it, the world needs it, and you can get paid for it, right? That's a great place to start planting your flag, right? And it's, a, it's an introspective exercise. It's a personal reflection exercise. It takes some time to really, to really think it through, but that's a great place to start planting your flag. If you're an entrepreneur and if you're, or, or you've got product management experience or kind of user experience, user design, user experience design and research experience, this is a great opportunity to do some market research as well and really get a sense of whether or not you're thinking about the right directions, right? Are there, I'll give you an example. Like when I, when I was like, okay, I'm going to plant a flag on lean UX. It's like, but wait, before I do that, like one of my passions is I play piano, right? I'm a piano player. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and one of my passions is uh, vintage electric pianos. <laughs> nice. when I, and when I lived in the U S I had a, I had a, a collection. I was big. I had five. Okay, and five vintage electric. My, my wife loved that, by the way. You couldn't bring them to Barcelona, right? <laughs> one. I managed to sneak one. Um, <laughs> the rest, uh, I sold three. My brother is holding on to my favorite one for me. Uh, it's very nice. Uh, yes, yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I was thinking about planting my flag, and I was like, I know a lot about vintage electric pianos. I could talk about it for a long time. Maybe that's where I should plant my flag. And you do a little bit of market research and you recognize that, yes, there's a community of enthusiasts about this, no doubt about it, but it's not massive. And the opportunity to really build even a successful lifestyle business, like we were talking about before, is dramatically reduced as compared to, hey, let's solve user experience design and agile for the world, <laughs> right? Like for, every, for literally every software development team in the world. Um, and so uh, that's, that's, a, that's a trade-off. You have, like the market research really helps with that. Yeah. Uh, very good that you bring up Ikigai because I wanted to ask you about that anyways. But yeah, we link, it, we link your blog post in the description. So everyone who's listening can just uh, take a read and understand it in a bit more detail. One thing that, is, that I get asked a lot around content marketing, building your brand. And I'm, I'm not doing it as actively as you, but I publish content and like sometimes get some like gigs because of it. And what many people ask me, how do you actually become a good writer or how do you improve your writing? Because in order to showcase your experience and your expertise, other people need to actually believe you. And that correlates a bit with how good you write. So do you have any advice on that? I think that will be very, uh, very important for some of the people who are listening. Yeah, so, so you're right. And, and it's funny, in, in the last sort of six months or so, a lot of folks have asked me um, what, I would, what, I would have, uh, what I would tell my younger self or how I would change some of the things that I've done over the years. And the number one thing I would do differently was learn to write sooner and start writing sooner. I really, really didn't start writing anything significant um, in any kind of meaningful way until I was, until I was about 30. That's rough, roughly speaking. I, I really didn't start writing. Um, now, since then, I, I've been doing increasingly more and more writing. And I feel, I, I'll, I'll tell you um, a little anecdote. Um, we published Lean UX, the first edition of Lean UX, uh, finished writing in, in December of 2012, and it published in March of 13. In 2016, we had an opportunity to go write the second edition of Lean UX. Um, and I went back and read, I mean, in order to do that, you have to go read the first edition again. It was the first time I'd read it 
in a while, maybe a year or two, really just read it cover to cover. And I was, I was disgusted. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was like, I just can't believe they published this. It's garbage. I can't believe it. it's so poorly written. It's horrible. Right. Um, and so we, we got a chance to rewrite it and we rewrote it and it came out. Uh, second edition came out 2016. We just signed on about a month ago to write the third edition of Lean UX. And part of the planning effort is the same. I had to go back and read the second edition of Lean UX. And again, it's been a couple of years since I read it cover to cover. I was not disgusted. <laughs> when I read it, um, which to me is speaks to what you're asking about, Mike, which is um, it's it's growth and practice in writing. Like I, you know, I, would I change things in it? Am I going to? Absolutely, right. But it didn't disgust me like the like version one did, right? So um, people can people can still buy the second absolutely. Second edition, right? I'm 100 yeah. behind it. Absolutely, <laughs> um, I'm glad the first version isn't really available anymore. <laughs> but, um, but the but the writing. It, so look, you take classes. Um, watch TED Talks, those online courses. Um, I haven't taken his course, but people really seem to like David Perel, young guy. He's, he's super popular mm. on Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, seems like a super opinionated kind of guy, but, but also um, people seem to really like his course, right? Um, see, I don't know. Like, I haven't taken it. That seems interesting. Um, but whatever it is, take a class and then just write. Like, the only way to get good is to write. Uh, it's a muscle, so you're exercising that muscle and you're practicing and you're getting better and you need some kind of a feedback mechanism and, and it needs to be honest. For me, for the last 12 years, my very, very, very honest feedback mechanism has been my co-author and business partner and friend, Josh Seiden. Um, Josh is, he's a brutal editor, um, you know, and, and we've built a very good relationship despite those interactions <laughs> um and but 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 getting somebody to and he you know he, he was a english major so he he started off as a writer that type of thing um but my point is is that um having somebody give you feedback right like i one of my biggest flaws for example was um and i still do it sometimes although you know, my hand's been slapped enough times and stuff, but I write in the passive voice. I used to write in the passive voice all the time. And Josh would just like, like if he was standing behind me, he'd just flick me behind the ear every time, like passive voice, passive voice, you know? Um, it's practice and it's, and it's some kind of an editor or honest feedbacks, like who will say, look, this was good. I didn't get this. I didn't understand that. And, and that to me is, is, the, is the way you do it. It's, it's getting some kind of foundation in it and then, and then practicing the writing. And, and you'll, you'll be amazed at how much better you get. Now, obviously, reading people that you admire, especially whose writing you admire, helps a lot. Looking at what's doing well in your domain or your industry to understand how to write for that audience mm. is very important. So to me, those, those are at least a couple of ways to get started. But I mean, this is, this, you could do years of podcasts about how to write, you know? Right. Right. And there's probably no, I mean, there's no magic formula, right? I mean, would you, would you rather prefer, I mean, you've, you've written a book, which of course is more I've intense. Four books, Max. I just want to be clear. Four books, four books. Okay. Four them I wrote twice. <laughs> yeah. And now you're writing it for the third time. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Sounds so super intense. I mean, <laughs> the, the question that I have, of course, is in, in some sense, people want to start writing and, is, and you talk about content marketing and I kind of want to bring that together because of course some people want to 
build their platform hopefully after this podcast in, in some, some regard. And do you think writing already starts with kind of short LinkedIn posts that you do, or do you need to look at larger, larger, let's say writings where people actually need to deep dive into certain topics and try to summarize certain things, or would you rather also start with LinkedIn posts and keep your way up to potentially writing four books like Jeff does? So the, the, those are the experiments. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, those are fantastic, low risk, low effort, low cost writing experiments. So twit tweets, LinkedIn posts, graduating up to 500 word medium articles, that type of thing. Those are really, really great. A great way to kind of figure out how to communicate to your audience, what resonates, how to say it, how to pull people in. And, and you're looking, look, the, the measure of success is just like a product, a service, a startup is outcomes. You're looking for behavior change in your target audience, mm. right? So you're looking for people to, to read it, <laughs> number one, to like it, to share it, to, to tell you they liked it, to, um, to reach out to you kind of you know, back channel say, listen, I read that thing that you wrote, super great. Um, you know, that, that's a really good, that, that's, that starts to give you a sense of, of whether or not you're, you're resonating. One additional thing that is actually, probably the answer is fairly similar, but you are also a fairly prolific speaker and you actually get paid for speaking, which is pretty cool. So mm. how do you become a good speaker especially since you just can't start by just speaking in a paid way in front of people, right? So how do you, how do you exercise that muscle? Maybe uh, like briefly for the ones who don't really write or don't want to write, want to speak more. Yeah. Um, yes. So look, there's, there's certainly uh, personality, personality traits that are helpful for that kind of thing. So a level of comfort in front of people helps. You don't have to have it. You can build that muscle up as well. Um, to me, though, the, the way you get started is that there are, and, and this is an American baseball term, so forgive me, but there are sort of the, uh, and I'm not a sports guy at all, but, <laughs> but nevertheless, there, there are uh, sort of the minor leagues of public speaking, right? And so the minor, as opposed to the major leagues, like right, the big conferences, um, the, the minor leagues of public speaking are your local meetups, um, brown bag lunches at your company, uh, uh, and any sort of small opportunity, um, giving a toast at a wedding, you know, th- those types of things. Those are fantastic places to practice how to give a great talk. And there's, there's endless, re- I've written an article about it. There's tips in, in the book and Forever and Playable about it. There's endless coaches and, and things. And just watch TED Talks, like, those are usually pretty good. Good, mm. good place to start, right? But the point is, is that is that start small and start with with kind of low risk engagements. So you're you're building up your you're practicing um, telling a story, which is is an art form. Like you've got you've got to perfect that after a while. Uh, you're practicing your your presentation materials. If you're going to use slides, if you're not going to use slides, so you're going to do any kind of live sketching, right? So you kind of experiment with that kind of stuff. Um, you get to test your material. So you get a sense of how well the material is resonating, where it's falling flat. Um, you know, if you're going to tell a couple of jokes, see where the jokes land, that type of thing. And, and then as that starts to get good and you start to build a bit of confidence and credibility, then you can start submitting yourself to conferences. That's, what I, that's kind of what I did and how I would do it is because a lot of conferences these days are going to ask for some kind of a video of you doing something. And so doing the meetups gives you that archive of content 
record everything, obviously. And then you can share that and say, look, here's me giving a talk on X, Y, or Z or whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, as you submit yourself to conferences, you start to uh, hopefully get accepted, start giving those talks. You archive more footage. You can, you can kind of make that available to folks so they can see that on your website. And then eventually, if, if that platform continues to grow and grow and grow, the inbound uh, requests eventually start to come in, especially if your topic is relevant and current and, and a lot of folks are looking for it at the, at the time. That's how I did it. Interesting. I, I want to cover the, something there that you mentioned. Um, you talked about also recording um, materials and then also sharing that um, for free or in some regard to people that might be interested. In the book, you also talk about giving things away for free in order to build your leverage for your platform. Um, I think that's something very interesting where potentially five to 10 years ago, nobody would have sold something for free or nobody would give away something for free. So why do you believe in that kind of structure? And why do you think that's beneficial, especially for people that are interested in, in, in building their employability for the future? It's, it's counterintuitive. And it was the last thing, the most current thing that I've learned about this business because Look, I've worked professionally for over 20 years. I have experience, I have expertise, and I believe I should be paid for that experience and that expertise. I think that's reasonable, <laughs> right? Um, and so to give it all away feels unintuitive. It feels like it doesn't make sense. Why would people reach out to me if they can just kind of read or listen or watch all of, to all of my ideas and all of my thoughts and my rationale. It turns out, to my surprise, that the more you give away, the more you share, the more people are interested in speaking with you about that content. So inevitably, the, the things that you share online are going to be presented either in a genericized format or in a, in a direction that's optimized for a specific industry or a context where you were speaking or writing or the experience that you had. And so inevitably someone's going to say, hey, listen, I saw that talk that you gave um, at that conference. I'd love to get a sense of how those ideas are going to work in our, you know, uh, healthcare device industry. Hmm. Right. And so all of a sudden people are coming in and saying, so you're introducing them to your ideas. You're introducing them to your, you and your personality, especially if you're putting up videos and, and podcasts and that type of thing. And if that creates a connection for those folks, inevitably they reach out. And that's when those opportunities start to come in. That's when the platform really starts to yield that, those magnetic properties. Right. Um, one of the things, look, I spent six months starting ahead of Forever Employable coming out, starting the conversation about that book. So by like a month before the book came out, the number of inbound requests continued to come in and in and in for podcasts and interviews and, and book reviews and that type of thing. And so it's unintuitive, but it works, it works, it works, it works. And if you go to my website, you'll see everything there is free, except for, you know, you have to buy the book and you have to uh, buy a ticket to my workshops. Maybe that's a good way or a good point to actually talk about, I mean, we, we have insinuated it, but what kind of workshops do you actually offer? And for those people who are listening, you are allowed to do some advertising now. <laughs> um, so like, when should people reach out to you? Like, what is the, the best point in their journey? What you're specialized on? Maybe just give us a, a brief pitch and then we, we can transition into the next topic. Sure. So, I, look, I help organizations. I help teams build great products. And I help uh, leaders build the cultures that build great products. 
Um, and generally speaking, people bring me in after they've, uh, I, I usually work with larger organizations, mid, mid and enterprise size organizations who have transitioned to some form of agile software development. And so they've implemented it and all of the awesomeness that they've expected from it fails to materialize. <laughs> um, and so that's generally when I get the call, right? And they're like, hey, we thought we did everything right, but it's not working. And it's especially not working because our product managers don't really fit in this process and our designers are failing to fit in this process. And so I'll come in and I will, I will work with the teams to help them build um, customer-centric cross-functional practices that use agile design thinking, I mean, startup and that type of thing. But it, and then I also do executive coaching. So my, the, the ideal engagement is when I've got an executive coaching track that runs parallel to the team training. And I work with the leaders of those teams to help them understand what it means to manage lean, agile, customer-centric teams. That's very, very, very important. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I also hear a lot as a question is when does it actually make sense for a team or a company to work in an agile environment and when is it a bad idea? Because like, usually what people tell me is it can't be a one-size-fits-all solution because there's always context, right? So do you have some, some like, opinion on that, on whether or not everyone should go agile and if not, who shouldn't do it? Generally speaking, if you're in software, the answer is yes. You should be you should be working in an agile fashion. Um, agile agile methodologies work well in high risk, low certainty situations. Software development is high risk, low certainty. Right? We just like the, the pace of change is too fast. Customer behavior is changing too fast, and we're not building static products. We're building systems that we need to update continuously. So agility is absolutely crucial in software. Um, if you are um, in the cell phone, like mobile phone tower construction business, right? Um, generally speaking, you know exactly what the thing is going to do. You know what it's going to look like. You know the materials that go into it. Um, and so, so roughly speaking, you're not, you're not going to benefit necessarily from agile methodologies in the sort of industrial manufacturing place. And look, in that situation, you've got high certainty and, and relatively low risk, mm -hmm. right? The risk comes from project planning and estimations and that type of thing. And you can use sort of agile ideas to, to help with that. But generally speaking, in, in, in high certainty, low risk situations, generally speaking, you could plan things out sequentially and they should play out the way that you expected. Um, but if you're building software, yeah, agility is key to being successful. Fantastic. I actually have a built-up question that, that builds up on top of, of, of the topic now. And I know we we are kind of touching on different topics, but I think that's super interesting to have a, an expert like you that we can cover different topics about. One thing that I'm interested in also that I get asked and that I saw also in different organizations is before we kind of deep dive into the end of, of the podcast, but one thing is the communication of product strategy, especially mm -hmm. for leaders and stakeholders in an organization. I've often seen that, especially from startups to big companies, that communicating product strategies is difficult uh, and often seems to be stuck in a silo or just in the certain product department. Mm -hmm. How do you enable an organization or essentially a product team to constantly communicate a strategy to the rest of the stakeholder groups and to the rest of the organization to become more product driven at the end of the day? So roughly speaking, I subscribe to uh, Roger Martin's definition of uh, strategy, strategic thinking. Uh, Roger Martin, you know, a big business school professor, very famous. Um, 
And he wrote an article, I think back in 2014, called The Big Lie of Strategic Planning. Uh, it's in a Harvard Business Review article. And in that article, he talks about um, reducing st st strategy to two questions. And the two questions are, where will you play and how will you win? Mm -hmm. um, where will you play is sort of what target audience are you going after? Um, what problem space are you going after? What else is going on in that, in that marketplace? And how will you win is, well, what are you going to do to differentiate and, and become the, the, the best in that, in that marketplace? Um, I wrote a blog post about six months ago um, that adds a third question to that, which is, okay, that's what Roger Martin said, where will you play? How will you win? I added, and how will you know you have won? In other words, what are the measures of success? And what that does, and I tweeted it at Roger Martin, and he, he liked it. So I was there. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fan but, uh, moment. The fan moment. Pretty much, yeah. It was a big deal for me. trying to reply to my tweet. Um, but the idea is that when you add the measure of success, because if you say, look, we're going to play in the 18 to 34-year-old video game, you know, uh, casual gaming marketplace, right? That's what we're going to play. How are we going to win? We're going to build super, super uh, addictive puzzle games for, uh, you know, kids commuting to school. I, I don't know. Making sense mm -hmm. of that, right? What's missing from that conversation is the measure of success that's related to your target audience. Because if you say, look, we're going to build super addictive puzzle games for 18 to 34-year-old casual gamers, okay, so we built three super addictive, uh, what we believe to be super addictive puzzle games for, for gamers, and it's like... That's it. <laughs> like, that's the measure of success, right? right. <laughs> Did they download them? Did they play mm. them? Did they share them? Did they continue to play them? How long did they play? That, that type of thing. And so that's why you need that third question of, of how do you know, how will you know you have won, right? So where you play, how you'll win, how do you know that you've won? And, and the metrics that you use are metrics of customer behavior. And, and what that inherently does is it shifts your product strategy into being a hypothesis, which it is. It's always a hypothesis, right? No one can predict the future. No one can say with 100% certainty, if we build highly addictive puzzle games for 18 to 34 year old casual gamers, we will make $2 billion, mm. right? And so every product strategy is a hypothesis. You should position it that way and have clear success metrics for it based in customer behavior. And if you're not hitting those metrics, you need to adjust your product strategy. And so the communication from entrepreneurs, chief product officers, product managers should always be, right, we are tar we're heading in this direction. This is the kind of behavior we want to see from our target audience. And here's what we're seeing. Mm. And if we don't see the kind of change that we're looking for, well, we've got to start pivoting, basically. Yeah. That's, that's uh, a very good way of describing it, in my opinion. And that's also how we try to do it. In the, in the real world, it's always a bit more difficult. That's why either some, some senior expertise or just failing and then doing it again and trying to make it better uh, is probably uh, how it looks like in the, in the real world. Yeah. But yeah, really, really like that uh, explanation. Maybe in the interest of time, um, we could talk about all of that for hours, right? You can talk about UX probably for weeks on straight without taking a breath. But yeah, let's, let's go to our uh, closing questions. We have a couple of things that are always very interesting to us. 
for the people who are listening. And I think the the one that I I would like to focus on first is how do your actual habits and routines look like, especially now that you're confined to your own house or apartment or like your own room maybe where you work so uh how does it how does it look like how do you make sure that you're productive maybe share something uh with your list with our listeners uh, that uh, help them so it's super interesting you know everybody wants what they don't have right that's the human na- that's human nature <laughs> um and uh, um you know it's funny when before before i started a consulting business and then became self-employed um I had a routine. I commuted to New York City from New Jersey every day for uh, forever, uh, felt like. And man, I hated that routine, right? Every day, catch the train, drive to the park, and drive to the train, get the train, catch the subway. I hated that routine because uh, it was the same thing every day, right? Um, so when, when I started a consulting company, became a consultant, uh, I really enjoyed sort of the, the freedom and the looseness of it. Some days in the office, some days on client sites, some days in an airplane, whatever it was, right? And that was cool for a while. I've been doing that long enough now, and the level of travel was so high that when we went into lockdown in mid-March of this year, um, I was thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) I was so happy um, because I didn't have to travel anymore uh, for work. I mean, I was gone 50% of the time. And and that's the that hurts my family life. It hurts, you know, uh, it doesn't allow me to build a social life out here or to do anything really fun. I had to kind of squeeze things in whenever I was in town. Um, in the last six months, I have managed to build a routine for the first time in, in a decade. And it's been amazing. Like for me personally, so I dedicate, um, and being self-employed helps, no doubt about it. But I dedicate, so I'm a morning person, not like super early, but I'm a morning person. So I dedicate the first two hours of my day to two and a half hours, depending on the day to personal, like personal improvement, self, self-development. So, um, I'll exercise, usually go for a bike ride, um, or take some kind of a class. I take a kickboxing class. I really enjoy it. Um, oh, nice. fun. um, just started doing that recently and that's been a lot of fun. Um, I will play piano. Often I'm still, still playing piano. I still got piano in my house. I play piano. Wakes um, up the wakes up the family nicely. I got, I got headphones. It's a digital. Oh, I got it. <laughs> that, that's that's where the electronic piece. Oh, you uh, got yeah, 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 yeah. It makes life easier. And then um, <laughs> and I'll take and you know not all this stuff every morning, but and I'll take a Spanish class like two or three times a week because I'm I'm learning Spanish. I live in a Spanish speaking country, so that routine is great. And then I start my day. Right. And what I found is because I work with Europe and the US is that, you know, you know, if I start my day around 1030 or 11, like my business day, I end up working until seven or eight, which is still well ahead of Spanish dinner time, which is mm-hmm. fine. And so that's worked really well for me is, is this routine. And, and look, the nice part about it is that when I have breaks during the day, uh, up until today, today's the first day of school, but up until today, I could pop out of my home office. Um, I do have a door on my home office, which is valuable. Um, uh, I could hop out of my home office and have a coffee with my wife or have lunch with my kids or sit on the balcony and t- you know, take in the sun for, for a half hour or whatever it is, take the dog for a walk. But, but I... I'll be honest with you, like I, I don't miss the traveling. And when things go back to some level of normalcy, I'm definitely not going back to 50% travel. Like, mm. like it's going to be very, very specific reasons why I'm leaving my house because I've proven to myself and to my clients that I can deliver my services remotely. And there's 
only only a few select reasons why we need to why they why I need to be not here basically okay but that's a very interesting development right because if it's like that for you it will probably be like that for other people as well mm -hmm. which means like it, it probably answers one of the questions that many people have right now how much of this remote culture actually sticks and the cool thing in, in quotation marks the cool thing about the lockdown right now is yeah. that everyone was forced to try because you didn't have any other option right so everyone who really likes the remote life, and for you it would have been probably much more difficult to actually transition into a life with less travel if this hadn't happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's a time machine, right? Like we jumped forward a, mm. a decade, I think, in really our thinking about work and future of work. Um, listen, I, I have a client; they have um, several thousand people, like five thousand people, in a call center across uh, across India. When India went on lockdown, everybody went home. They couldn't go to the call center, so they began doing working from home, right? It would have taken them literally a decade to come to grips with running a call center from home, right? But they had to do it overnight, and they figured it out. And so I think that there's, they've tried it. We'll see what sticks. You know, it's interesting. Um, there were elements, you know, when, when everything, especially in Europe, went into lockdown, there were all these amazing photos of clear skies and the waters in Venice and, <laughs> you know, and, and all that stuff. Like, and we're never going back to the way it was, right? And then when the lockdowns lifted, we kind of went back to the way it was, right? Like traffic's back and planes are flying and people are throwing garbage in the waters in Venice, you know, and it's like, uh, and so look, here's what I think. I think that if we go back to some sense of normalcy within the next six to 12 months, like there's a vaccine or some kind of dramatic shift in, in, in this pandemic, um, I think most of the stuff doesn't stick. Hmm. No, I, I think that ultimately people will, the majority of people will go back to the way it was. If this continues for more than 12 months, 18 months, or another couple of years with this kind of back and forth with spikes and waves and lockdowns and non-lockdowns and that type of thing, um, I think a lot of it sticks. Um, right. So. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that the word figuring it out totally makes sense, right? I think there are some companies that are, I actually see companies that are potentially moving from remote now to building an office, interestingly enough. And people in India, I've also talked to a company in India um, that actually they couldn't work remotely because they didn't have laptops in place that they can take home. They only have personal computers that are potentially sitting in an office. So of yeah. course, there are some geographical differences, but generally, I, I think it's a super interesting transition. Um, by the way, transi transition, I think um, finally coming to the last question, um, of course, we will also cover your book into, in the show notes, but what is maybe an inspiring book that you haven't mentioned on 100 other podcasts that you wanted to share uh, in Startup Sparks and Serendipity as something that you would like to give forward to an audience that is interested in um, building a, uh, a long employability in their career? Yeah, so the, the book that I like, and I know we're doing audio only, I was going to share it to you so much, so the book that I've been spending a lot of time with lately is a book called Small Teaching. Um, it's by a guy named James Lang. And it is, it's kind of like lean startup for teaching, um, which is super cool, right? So this, this, he's a college professor, university professor, and he's taken 2,000 years of pedagogy, like how to teach and he's boiled it down into very specific small ideas that you can implement immediately 
in any kind of environment where you're teaching, coaching, training, speaking, whatever it is, which is, believe it or not, what most of us do, unless you're you know, like actively writing code or pushing pixels, you, at some point you've got to teach somebody something. Um, and and he, he he's, has a very explicit recipe for how to do the thing and the kind of results that you should hope to see from it. And these are the kinds of things that you don't need to wait an entire semester or entire cohort to go through a class to figure out if they work. Like you could implement them in, in, on day one and see a result in day two. Um, and so I'm a big fan. And he's got, he's got an online version of that book too, which is kind of cool as well. So that's, that's what I've been spent. I'm learning a lot from that and trying to implement it in my work. Fantastic. Mike and I definitely hadn't mentioned that yet. Uh, so that's, that's a new one to the list and for the listeners. Good. This was great. Um, thanks, Jeff, from my side. Um, I think we covered lots of different points. And of course, we transitioned into lots of different topics. I hope that was fine for you. Um, it was not as planned, but I think it was a fantastic conversation. Thanks again for, for your time from my side. Mike, my pleasure. Anything? My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, that was great. Thank you, Jeff. Have a good day.